Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Asia is home to more than a third of humanity, has experienced rapid economic growth, and as a result, environmental issues are a pressing concern to almost every corner of the region. In recognition of this, we embark on a short podcast series, looking at these issues as they are experienced in key parts of Asia. We begin, perhaps appropriately, with India. Its cities have the worst air pollution, its iconic rivers are, in some places, literally dead, and there is a problem with balancing the needs of human development and environmental imperatives. Joining me on the podcast to discuss this is Professor Amitabh Aviska, a sociologist from the Economic Institute of Growth in Delhi. I think the first thing that comes to mind when I think of the environment in India is what a huge paradox it is. Because there's a lot of cultural traditions in Hinduism and Buddhism that are all about respect and reverence for nature. Mm. So a lot of Indians worship rivers, regard them as sacred, as their mother. There's a lot of reverence for forest spirits. But when we look at actual use, there's in fact much more abuse going on than sustainable use. So I think the biggest problem in India right now is that there is this great difference between the way in which we've traditionally regarded nature as mother, as an entity to be respected, and the way in which our desire to become more developed, which means more industrialized, more urbanized, to have a higher standard of living, has meant that we've had to really exploit nature quite brutally. Mm. And I think we're living with the fruits of that exploitation and that have sort of come home to haunt us now. When you say exploitative, is there the luxury to be respectful of nature? A lot of about India comes down to the factor of, of well, basically population pressures. It's a relatively small country with a lot of people. It's going to be the most populated country within the next 10, 15 years or so. Is there enough capacity to be respectful of the environment when there's such demands on it as well? It's true that we have a large, large population that still isn't consuming at a level where they can live lives that are reasonably healthy, prosperous, lives of dignity and freedom. And certainly, uh, we have to develop in ways that would allow them to have access to basic needs and so on. But a lot of the development that's happened in India, and that's placed a huge extractive toll on the environment, has not actually delivered benefits to these groups of people. Right. What we've seen is a very unequal pattern of development. And from the 1950s onwards, when India embarked on a policy of intensive industrialization, even though it was all in the name of national development and helping those who were the poorest, actually the gains from that process have gone to people who are already better off or who uh, have been powerful enough to make sure that they corner the benefits. So, yes, we need to develop, but I think as much as needing to provide benefits to people who've been deprived of them historically, we need to really look at issues of redistribution because the reason why there's this great environmental crisis is as much to do with the inequalities in our society as it is to do with the fact that certain basic minimum hasn't been provided to the poorest of poor. You have been studying the way that urban environments interact with the natural environment 
and the inequality that comes about with that. So anything that's done to clean up an urban environment, Delhi, for example, is done at the expense of the poorest in the city. So can you talk me through that process and what's driving this force to embrace uh, more green initiatives in the cities? Indian cities have always been important in terms of imagining a better life. And a lot of people from rural areas come to cities as well because that's where their jobs are. That's where they can hope for their children to have a better future. That's where education and standards of health care are better. Mm. So cities are magnets. Well, at the moment, it's about 30% urban population in India, if that's right. It's actually larger if you look at what are called census towns. So cities which are not notified as cities, but which because of the numbers, you know, they should be designated as as towns and cities. So I'd say it's more like 40% urban for sure. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who move between cities and villages because they're seasonal migrants. They come into cities to work part-time and then they go back to rural areas when there's harvesting or sowing to be done in the fields. So there's a lot of circular migration going on between different regions and between the countryside and, and cities. And because cities are just so important in terms of how upper class Indians imagine or would like to see the country as world class, as on par with developed places like, say, Singapore or London or Paris or New York, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of work that goes into investing in certain kinds of capital intensive projects in the city which would mean glass and concrete skyscrapers, certain kinds of shopping malls, air-conditioned recreational spaces, and so on. And the land for building these sorts of places which are for work and living and recreation for better-off people happens to today be at a premium. And a lot of public land in the city has been occupied by working-class squatters many of the migrants who come to the city to work but who can't find any legal, affordable place to live in. Sure, yeah. So the process of gentrification and the process of making the city world-class in effect means kicking the poor out because they're illegally there because that land now commands a higher price than it did before. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's going on in the remaking of Indian cities often in the name of environmentalism, because it's about making the city clean and green, is actually a kind of enclosure of spaces which were occupied by poor people, but are now being taken over by well-to-do sections of the urban population who want them for their kinds of projects, capital-intensive projects, which have a certain kind of world-class aesthetic. Mm. This means that the kinds of results one often gets are very, very unequal. They make life worse for poorer people. And ironically, they often end up placing greater ecological burdens on the city. So poor people might occupy land in the center of the city, but often the kinds of resources that they use are not as intensive as the kinds of projects that the better off population of the city wants to use, just in terms of energy intensity, in terms of water. Mm. The ecological footprint of these new developments is far, far higher than the sort of basic necessities that poor people were drawing upon the environment for. But it's not just clearing slums and those sort of housings. It's, it's also shutting down the industry that would give these people employment for the lower rungs of society, isn't it? And that's in an effort to, you know, pollute less and clean up the air. But that's where those people were working. So there's a 
a definite balance here that's not really enacted. Yeah. And the upper middle class, which concerns itself with environmental issues. And to be sure, these are important environmental issues. I mean, Delhi has the worst air quality right now compared to any city in the world. The quality of water in the river Yamuna, which runs through the city, is is, is horrible. Mm. So there are good reasons for taking action about air pollution and water pollution. These are in some ways universal issues. Everybody is affected by them. But the strategy that has been taken by environmentalists often is to use the courts and the media in such a way that the other people who are affected by these environmentalist campaigns actually don't have a say in what happens at all. Which is why we find that instead of saying, let's get these industries to clean up their act, what we get are court judgments which say, let's get them to shut down. So it becomes sort of a a toss-up. I mean, you might get cleaner air, mm. but at the same time, you've kicked out you know hundreds of thousands of people from jobs that they needed. For these people, clean air was important, sure, but their livelihoods are far, far more important for them to be able to just survive in the city. Mm. So those are the kinds of dilemmas where one would think if everybody had a chance to express their point of view, we might come up with solutions which are actually compromises, where industries get a chance to install pollution control equipment so that jobs aren't lost, so that poorer people get access to, say, affordable housing, so that their waste, you know, solid as well as sewage, doesn't end up polluting the river and so on. But because the land that the poor occupy is often something that is intensely wanted, for projects which are going to make more money, it makes sense within the logic of what is going on to actually kick them out and to completely shut out their concerns rather than saying, well, let's try and have a more inclusive urban growth, which addresses the issues of pollution, but which also provides safe and affordable and stable place for all sections of society. Can I ask you about the government then? When you listen to Narendra Modi talk about the environment, uh, you've got somebody who's very committed now, now that India has signed on with the the Paris Agreement. And there was some reluctance to sign on to that at first to do anything that might clamp down on economic growth, and that that's a real important priority to India. But what do you think the level of commitment is to the Paris Agreement and, say, lessening the CO2 levels that India emits, because it's number three in the world for pollution emitters? And the Prime Minister and the government's commitment to those sort of changes? I think it's hard to make that commitment really stick because so much of what India needs in terms of being able to meet the basic requirements of development for its energy needs and so on depends if it's not to follow the carbon path, needs new technologies and it needs a lot of funding to which, in principle, you know, the industrialized countries have... I was about to say, in principle, they've got to provide it. Yeah, well, in principle, they've got to provide it. But you see, so far, we're not seeing any signs of that money coming the way of the Indian government. Yeah. Along with that is the fact that there is still a lot of vested interest in carrying on with the old coal-based economy. People have invested their money in technologies which still have a certain shelf life, mining interests and so on. The Indian automobile industry is very strong. All of these make it very hard for India to shift to 
a pattern of development where it can say that it's going to meet its targets. Mm. It's not like China, which has made a super humongous effort to try and enter the renewable energy economy and make money off of it. India just doesn't have that kind of uh, research capacity. And it's certainly not investing in making it any better. So I don't see India's commitments internationally being met anytime soon. Mm. Do you have any thoughts, though, on Narendra Modi's commitment to it? In your opinion, is he somebody who genuinely cares about the environment? Because he does talk the talk. He does say that the environment is very important to him and to India. Or is he somebody who just says that because that's the sort of thing that a country leader says? I think this government's commitment to the environment is a joke. No Indian government has ever truly been committed to the environment, Mm. mainly because its political interests have always been sided with industrial development. So the environment has always been an afterthought for every single government. But for this government, more than any other previous government, the environment really doesn't matter. If you look at how the uh, BJP, the party that Narendra Modi represents, has come into power, its entire election funding depends on the support of large corporate firms. And when they're in power, these large corporate firms want their money paid back. That make good on their investment. Exactly. And one sees this because, you know, a top industrialist in India, Mr. Adani, who is well known in Australia. Well well. known in Australia. Yeah. I mean, he accompanies the prime minister on a number of his trips abroad and so on and travels within the country. They've had a large number of very large environmental penalties waived off. You know, I can I can go down the list and tell you about all the corporate capitalist firms who've received very, very sweet deals from this government. I'm not saying this didn't happen before, but I'm saying that the nakedness with which this happens and the extent to which this is expanded under this government is unprecedented. Mm. At the same time, what we see is that India's legal structures, which are meant to control what happens in terms of regulating large projects, which can have environmental effects, which have always been somewhat shaky and leaky and permeable in terms of political influence, have now just been completely you know, set aside. So, for instance, the environmental clearances that you need in order to have a large mining project or large dam project. Earlier, there was at least a fig leaf of trying to have due diligence in terms of conducting studies, in terms of listening to environmentalists and so on. Now, these committees which are supposed to supervise these projects are either completely manned by people who are going to say whatever the government wants them to, or they're completely uh, superseded and overruled. So environmentalists are having a really tough time in this country for all the pious things, uh, the platitudes that the government may utter about the environment, they really don't give a damn. And I think the kind of damage that this government has done and will do if it continues in power to the environment is absolutely irreversible. So for India then, where's the hope for the environment? Is there any hope for the environment? I feel that the only avenue that you can turn to is the government is voted in by the people. If the people are annoyed enough about this, they can enact change. If they want clean air, they've got a call for it. 
loudly. And it's probably going to have to be the rich people who call for it loudly. And to his credit, quotation fingers, Modi has pledged, for example, that he's going to clean up the river, that he's going to clean up the air, that there's going to be a toilet in every house. And there has been progress on that sort of thing. So things are being done, aren't they? There is some hope for the environment. No? As far as the cleaning up of the river, especially the river Ganga, the main river in North India goes, there is, in fact, a number of confusing things which have been said by this government. One, they have said they'll clean it up, but there's been very little action done on the ground Mm. because action requires different things to be done by different people. So, for instance, you have a number of cities along the Ganga, all of which release their sewage as well as industrial effluence into the river. What you have to do is empower each one of those cities to be able to install sewage treatment systems so that the water that's released into the river is no longer dirty. Now, that requires a level of action which means that you must have decentralization Mm -hmm. in terms of funding, in terms of management capacities. And this is a government that is highly centralized. It's not actually putting the money where it's supposed to. When it comes to other issues as well around rivers, we see that all sorts of other things are being said. So, for instance, there's a strong push now to link rivers on the grounds that this is going to address the problem of droughts and floods help areas which are drought prone and therefore distressed gain access to water. Now, the chief reason behind these very, very expensive interlinking projects is that they cost a lot of money. There's a lot of money to be given to the people who support you during election times, to contractors, to politicians. Mm. If every Indian project, and it's the public secret, involves 25% as commissions and kickbacks. If you have a project that costs billions, you can imagine the scale of corruption and the kind of financial interest riding on these grandiose ideas of interlinking rivers Mm. when the actual data, the hydrological data, actually says, you know, you can't do this. It doesn't make any sense. The strong environmental concerns, the social impacts that haven't been investigated And yet these projects get pushed through. So you have claims about making the Ganga clean. You have claims about making it navigable. We don't even know what the ecological effects of making the river navigable will be. Mm. So all of these projects are just sort of claimed and announced. And the movement that we see is only in the direction of, you know, investing money where there is patronage to be dispersed. I don't see these projects doing anything that actually supports rivers as ecological entities, supports rivers as entities upon which the survival and livelihoods of local people depends, treating rivers not as just pipes full of water, but as parts of a larger landscape. Mm. So Modi is great at talking and, you know, his speeches are wonderful because, you know, he's, he proclaims things with a kind of swagger, which sounds very impressive. But you look down on the ground, there's very little happening. And what is happening is completely contrary to any idea of ecological or social justice. And I'm putting it that strongly because it really is dire on the ground. So what about the last avenue then maybe is pressure from international countries, from the global community saying, you signed the Paris Agreement, Modi. Hugging isn't enough. You need to clean up the environment in India. You said that you would. 
we're all doing it in our own countries and we're meeting the Paris Agreement. Would that be enough? Would global pressure be enough? Well, if global pressure worked, I mean, look at what the US is doing, right? Yeah, I mean, well. <laughs> so does global pressure work anyways? International pressure can sometimes be counterproductive because countries like India often hold up the poverty card and say, you guys exploited us for so long because we were colonized mm. and it's on our backs that you managed to industrialize and you're the main perpetrators of this problem that we have. And by the way, you promised us money. And and by the way, you promised us money, exactly. Mm. So India can continue to sort of stand on the backs of all the poor people whose per capita emissions are indeed very low and say, we still have the right to pollute and you still owe us the money to mitigate and get off that particular development trajectory. What India does not acknowledge internationally is the fact that a lot of Indians are quite well off and the emissions are, if not of, say, you know, first world countries, certainly they're of middle income countries. So there hasn't been any kind of change of route in terms of the direction in which Indian consumption habits are traveling. So for most people, the idea of an improved lifestyle is still an energy intensive lifestyle. And that energy isn't coming from renewables. And the government certainly isn't moving people away. So I don't see international pressure as changing anything very much because there's all of these poor people on whose backs the country can claim, the government can claim that, you know, it still has the right to pollute. Yeah. So do you see any hope then for India's environment or is it just something that is going to improve far in the future when development has caught up? like it has for every other country that has polluted their own country in their development phase. Yeah. You know, I earlier would have said that there's enough social opposition, there's social movements, there's enough counter-protest, counter-dynamic to what is going on. Mm -hmm. And that would somehow help save the day. But I don't see that happening right now. I think environmental movements, in fact, all kinds of social progressive movements in India are really on the back foot because of both the Hindu nationalist agenda as well as the larger trajectory of industrial urban development. I see change happening from unintended sources. So for instance, if there was going to be a global recession, it may just mean that the development trajectory we're on will no longer be that viable. For instance, India had some very large mining projects, which was to be funded by the South Korean company POSCO, which was for mining iron ore and then shipping it to South Korea. Um, There was a very strong environmental movement in Eastern India in the region that would be affected by the mining against the project. And for the longest time, the government, in fact, couldn't allow the project because there was this strong opposition on the ground. But ultimately, the government said, no, we are going to clear this project and let the South Korean company have its way. But because the social movement had managed to delay the project long enough, by that time, internationally, the economic system had worsened. It didn't make any more sense for POSCO. It wasn't viable for them economically Mm. to mine that iron ore anymore. It's those sorts of unexpected contingencies if the price of coal drops, if the price of iron ore drops, 
if you know construction in China becomes less than what it has been in the past, it's that kind of global slowdown that might actually make other environmentally more benign technological social alternatives possible. Mm. But that's a harsh scenario because we can't get to that scenario without there being a lot of suffering, without there being further job loss, without some people taking a beating. Yeah, it's a grim scenario when the environment's best hope is an economic downturn. Yeah, but unfortunately that's what it looks like from where I am sitting in Delhi. That's Professor Amita Baviska, a sociologist from the Economic Institute of Growth in Delhi. And you have been listening to Asia Rising. You can subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, and reviews are appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.